Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Yona Freemark, a PhD candidate in urban studies at MIT. We're also joined by guest co-host Gregory Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa. This episode is part of a special series of the Business Scholarship Podcast, exploring what the literature has to teach about coronavirus and its impact on society and the economy. Today, Yona, Greg, and I will be discussing this question in the context of mass transit. So, Yona, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and Greg, welcome back, this time as a co-host. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrew. Yona, I thought we would maybe start this conversation both grounding the conversation in what is happening now, but also what has been written and is already understood about this crisis in the context of transit. So what have the scholarly literatures taught us, whether something that you've written or others uh, have written, what would they teach us about how we should be thinking about transit in the context of this crisis? You know, there's not a huge amount out there about how transit systems can respond in the face of mass epidemics. But what we do know is that there are great opportunities for changes in the way we think about transportation as a result of disruption. Some scholars like Greg Marsden and Louise Reardon have pointed out that we need to think about transportation as an issue of governance, an issue of politics and choices made by public policy. And I think all of us see transportation as one element of, you know, the broader response to the coronavirus right now. But the question is, can we take advantage of the changes that are occurring in our society to radically change what we think of in terms of acceptability of our current transportation system in response to the coronavirus? And so from that perspective, some scholars like Ian Dotrady have pointed out that disruptions can radically change the way transportation works. They've pointed to things like fuel shortages, major storms, and policy interventions as ways that transportation can fundamentally change. And so I think we should be thinking about the coronavirus from that perspective now. We should be thinking of it as a possibility for changing our policy approaches to transportation in general. There we see evidence of that in less catastrophic examples as well, right? I think there's some research on disruptions to the London underground network that showed that when people had to reconsider their commute path, they often picked quicker paths and stuck with them, even after the disruptions subsided. Does that sound familiar? Right. No, that's absolutely right. I think what's really interesting about what's going on right now is that, for example, we're seeing in places like New York City, a vast uptick in the number of people biking to work as a result of the, uh, you know, as, as a result of the crisis. I think if we imagine this is an opportunity, we can see that as a long-term trend, but it will require policy interventions to maintain that excitement about people taking, you know, for example, biking to work over time. Right. And Mexico City and I think now Bogota are looking at implementing emergency bike lanes to make that safer. Of course, we know from all sorts of research that more people would bike to work if it were safer and easier to do so. It's a, it's a good opportunity for cities to get out in front on that. What are transit agencies doing right now? Uh, you know, like how much service should they provide? I think some of us have seen photos of packed subway cars kind of recoiled a little bit and we don't feel like that's 
a great situation. But some people, of course, still need access to transit. In fact, millions of people, even in the United States, really need it. Healthcare workers, people delivering food. I mean, many, many, many groups of people. What are some changes agencies should be making and maybe what should not be happening? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all sort of in uncharted territory right now in terms of thinking about how much space we need on our transportation systems. We're used to the idea that we should sort of fill up our transit systems as much as possible. And now we're talking about the need to, you know, spread people apart into different areas. So one thing we already know is that there has been a very significant decline in transit systems all over the world in terms of their ridership. There's something called Transit App that is currently monitoring traffic decline. And they see in the U.S. as a whole, 61% decline in transit use. But that still leaves 40% of the traffic that we used to have on a daily basis. And that's actually a lot of people. And as you said, there are a lot of people out there like grocery store workers, people work in hospitals and others who really need the transit system. And so we need to make sure that it can continue to be an important resource for people out there. So I guess I think it's important to point out that transit agencies need to maintain a certain level of service. And what are, are there some changes they can make? In the course of operations, for example, allowing backdoor boarding or even making, I think I saw at least one system has made the system free, partly to minimize contact, physical contact. I think we need to make sure that the transit system can handle the existing riders in a way that reduces contact with the bus driver and reduces contact between individuals. Metro, the Chicago commuter rail system, has chosen to continue running eight-car trains instead of reducing the size of those trains because it wants to make sure that people can separate out and not be close to one another. But I think, as you said, other opportunities are things like getting rid of the transactions that people have when they're boarding the bus. Don't have riders come on board and try to pay in cash or even maybe insert their fare card into the machine because that's an unnecessary transaction if we're really concerned about minimizing contact with one another and with the disease. I think also the backdoor boarding option is such a great one for transit agencies across the country because it can allow people to use this other door that we've currently closed mm-hmm. off to riders. But then this could sort of prove as a, an experimental proving ground for the future and you know, opening up new opportunities for how we think about bus services. How does automation figure into this? In the U.S., there's very little automation in transit services. But elsewhere, perhaps most prominently Paris, there is a great deal of automation. How does that kind of play into this? Because in the U.S., for example, a lot of the marginal cost of running additional trains or buses is the labor cost. But that, I assume, is a little bit different if it's automated. Well, interestingly, in the U.S., we have such a dependence on labor as the large share of operating costs for our transit agencies. You know, uh, large agencies spend 60 to 70 percent of their operating budgets on labor, which actually means there's very little actual marginal cost of labor for adding or subtracting transportation service from the public transit agencies, which is interesting because essentially Hmm. it's when you have a certain labor workforce already in place, if you subtract service hours, you're not going to fire mm-hmm. those people until you're in, in dire mm-hmm. straits, right? So if your mm-hmm. agencies, if the majority of your agency's budget is going to labor, then you're not going to be able to save very much money by reducing services today, it turns out. Actually, mm-hmm. with automation, you have the opposite effect, which is that it's more feasible to reduce services and save money Mm -hmm. as part of that. 
I see. And are we, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at what's happened on automated lines. I don't think there has been a significant change in most systems that have automated lines because in most of the rest of the world, there's been these decision to maintain transit services at roughly the same level that existed prior to the coronavirus. I think mm-hmm. U.S. agencies have done a pretty good job in maintaining service as well. One big concern is if transit workers start to get sick or if transit agencies start running out of money. Mm. In both those cases, Mm. then we're going to start to see a big challenge in actually maintaining the levels of service that hospital workers, grocery workers, the people we rely on are going to continue to need. And as you pointed out, you know, we are still seeing crowding on certain routes. I just saw an image this morning mm-hmm. of a bus in Washington, D.C. that was just packed with people. And, you know, in, in the Boston region where I live, we have very different effects in different parts of the city. So the blue line, which is a sort of train line that goes to a largely Latino area north of downtown Boston, continues to actually see pretty high levels of ridership. And I think that's to a large degree because a lot of the people who live in those areas are working service jobs and important jobs that we continue to do for our society to be able to stay intact. And then, you know, the effects, you mentioned a few systems, the, the effects by system do not seem uniform. I mean, the direction of the effects is kind of the same. Reduction in ridership, fare box recovery, and so forth. But it mm-hmm. seems like some transit agencies are particularly affected right now and others less so. Why is that the case? And why is transit different in that regard from some of our other transportation systems? So transit is as a public service and it operates with fees and subsidies provided by tax revenues, right? And this is somewhat similar to other public services like trash collection. But it is many transit agencies are quite dependent on rider provided revenues through fares, as we all know. I mean, certainly there are places like the San Francisco Bay area where the transit agencies are very heavily dependent on fare revenues. So if you look at BART and the Caltrain systems, which operate in the Bay Area to serve San Francisco, they get 74% of their operating costs covered from riders, and the rest of it is paid for by tax subsidies. Now, if they suddenly lose a very large share of their ridership base, those transit agencies are going to face an enormous fiscal crisis. They're literally going to run out of cash to be able to pay their drivers, buy fuel, pay for electricity, and things of that sort. So it turns out that the biggest agencies are right now the ones getting hit the hardest by the coronavirus simply because of the lack of fare revenue coming in. And in that way, they're actually quite similar to what the airlines are experiencing, right? Because airlines also are incredibly dependent on revenues from tickets. And when suddenly nobody's buying tickets anymore, they have a very hard time operating. And so that's the situation they're in. But it's worth pointing out that smaller agencies in a lot of smaller cities throughout the United States actually get very little money from fares. And so for now, they're probably going to be continuing to be able to provide the same level of service that they used to provide. Yanni, tell us how roads and transit are different. Most people, to the extent they're choosing how to get around day to day, are choosing between those two choices rather than, say, flying. Do they have the same funding model? How are they affected by coronavirus? Are they affected similarly or differently? Well, transit and the road system have fundamentally different financing models because of the fact that the road system relies on individuals to provide the labor of driving, whereas the transit system relies on publicly funded individuals who are hired as drivers 
to provide the labor of driving. And that results in a very different outcome when it comes to this specific crisis here, because the road system is largely a piece of capital infrastructure that then you know, requires families or households to put in the operating costs, the labor costs of driving around on the streets, paying for gas and things of that sort. So that means that at the current moment, the transit systems in our cities and our states are far more at risk from a fiscal perspective than the road system as a whole. In the longer term, though, both of these systems are incredibly reliant on subsidies or support from the tax system, whether that means the gas tax, sales tax, or in some cases, income and payroll taxes. And if we are going to see the gigantic economic effects that people are already starting to predict from this coronavirus, you know, uh, I think there was an estimate this morning of minus 24% in the GDP in the second quarter. If we see effects like that, we're going to see enormous declines in tax revenues on all accounts. And that means we're going to have a very hard time funding the capital expenses and for transit, the operating expenses of our transit and roadway systems. Yeah, I think that it's going to be really be a crisis for transit, for cities, for states. The only government entity in the U.S. that can really get us out of that, in my opinion, is the federal government, which can print money, doesn't have to balance its budgets, and can either make loan guarantees or grants to state cities and transit agencies to to help welder uh, the storm. And of course, we have precedents for that in 2008 and in, in the past. But I think it's important to dwell on one of the points you made, which is that the road system, I mean, superficially, seems like roads don't cost public money, but transit systems do because we have a gas tax and it doesn't seem like roads are very expensive, but we spent something like $45 billion on just on highways last year, the federal government alone, right? And then there are state and local expenditures, and then there is policing, then there is the DMV system, the traffic court system. In many places, the number of hearings and the burden on the court system that comes from traffic court is equivalent in terms of number of cases to that from the rest of the system combined. So it would be difficult to tally up all of the costs, but there are a lot of public costs. The gas tax covers, which hasn't been raised federally since 93, covers a shrinking percentage of that. But one thing that I think is interesting that, that kind of is visible now that the tide has gone out is that when, in these larger systems you mentioned that receive a substantial portion of their funding from Fairbox, uh, from fares, is that you know those systems now demand destruction by the coronavirus means that they are way in the red. But yes. on the road system side, the way we've set it up where the uh, cost of using the road is the operating costs that are devolved to the users, the user actually saves money and the system saves money as well because presumably the value of the roads, the, the depreciation and so forth is slowed by the, the lack of use. And so coronavirus bad for transit in a way, good for roads. And I think as you're suggesting, that suggests some interesting things about our funding models. One thing that I think is worth pointing out here is that one thing the coronavirus has really revealed as well is the fact that we have designed our entire roadway network around peak use. And what that means is that we have all these highways all over the country right now that are sitting completely empty, taking up enormous amounts of space, 
that, you know, we've essentially decided, okay, it's important to have these roadways take up an enormous amount of our cities, but now they're sitting there empty with no use for them because there's no traffic anymore. And so from that perspective, the roadway system is incredibly inefficient in this moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's, there's a sense in which it's very inefficient in general. And this, this kind of reveals that, which is that like 22 hours a day, five days a week, and probably closer to 24 hours a day, the other two days in most places, that system is just massively overbuilt. And it's true pre-corona, but now we see it at 5 p.m. in Chicago, where I'm based this semester. You can look at the Google map traffic and all the roads are clear, which is never the case. In fact, one of the freeways in Chicago is, I believe, the most congested in the whole country. And that one is uh, mm-hmm. clear as day right now. And say more about this peakiness, because I, I don't think the people necessarily understand what that means. Like, what, what are we planning for? If you're staying at home with your kid and not during Corona, but like maybe you drop the kid at daycare and then you go to the grocery store and you come home, maybe you work from home part-time and pick up your kid after daycare and maybe care, you know, visit your grandparents or something and then come home. How much of this is captured by our current model? Well, I think one thing that's interesting about the transportation system as a whole is that because our society operates on a sort of nine-to-five schedule for the most part, we have to design every element of it, the roadway system, the transit system, uh, to account for that. And that means we invest in quite expensive, very large pieces of infrastructure uh, that are designed to handle those peak loads. And as you said, it's empty or closer to empty the rest of the time during the day and during the weekend. And that applies to both the roadway system and the transit system. It's unclear how we get out of this if we continue to be a society that commutes and that has you know a rough nine to five schedule that is shared by most of the people in the society. But it does suggest we have really overbuilt in the circumstance of a a situation like this. Can you tell us a bit about what this crisis tells us about transportation capacity and transportation network design and how peakiness interacts with spatial distribution? Well, I think what's going to be really interesting coming out of this is to do an analysis of how people's travel patterns have changed. I mean, I assume in general that the amount of travel occurring on all transportation systems has already declined very dramatically, but we will continue to see some, you know, activity going between different places. But I think you're right that I think we're going to see totally different routes that people are taking, totally different priorities that people have in terms of where they're trying to go. And, you know, I I don't know the answer to your question, but I think we're going to have to do research to find out. So what are the long-term effects of this crisis? God willing, we'll get past this. What's going to happen to some of the big construction programs that are underway or planned in places like LA and Seattle? Are we going to see major drops in service like we saw during the last recession and even for several years afterwards? I, I was living in New York immediately after the recession. I remember service was just slashed. And I think it was later revealed this really, in many cases, only saved peanuts to the agency. It seemed like a mm-hmm. political thing. What can we expect going forward? Well, I think without a very large and immediate support from the federal government, as we discussed, virtually all transit agencies in the country are going to be incredibly fiscally stressed in the coming months and year. I mean, if we do see the very significant drop in tax revenues that we should be expecting given the economy as a whole, it's going to be 
a bloodbath for the transit agencies. And I should say, not just for the transit agencies, for all public services provided by the state and local governments, which are dependent on tax revenues and which you know cannot really go into deficits. I mean, 49 out of 50 states have a statutory or constitutional requirement. They don't go into a deficit. So we're going to be facing a major crisis. And I expect that the declines in transit service provided will be equivalent to, if not more dramatic than those that we saw between 2008 and 2010 in cities all across the country. And unfortunately, those declines in service provision will really hurt cities once our economy, God willing, and our people come back to normal after this crisis finishes. You know, if we have a inadequate transit system, we're going to see more people choosing to drive. We're going to see more pollution, more congestion and things of that sort. And we're going to, you know, suffer the consequences over the long term as a result of that. So I really hope that we're able to find the, the means to, to make up for that. The other thing that you pointed to is the fact that we do have large transit expansion programs in a lot of cities around the country, places from Raleigh, North Carolina, to Seattle, Washington, to Los Angeles, California. And they're dependent. Most of these programs are dependent on revenues from sales taxes. A lot of these places have passed local referenda that increase the sales taxes to pay for new rail lines, new bus lines and things of that sort. If we suddenly see a decline in the revenues to the sales taxes, all those transit construction programs are going to be significantly delayed. And that's going to be a major problem for cities that are counting on that revenue to amp up the quality of their rail and bus services. You mentioned some of the crisis effects on transit. And I think, as you alluded to, a lot of public agencies, uh, as well as elements of the private sector, are going to be coming to the federal government with hat in hand. And although it's my view that uh, the federal government has a lot of flexibility to help, what do you say to those who weren't taking transit before the coronavirus, don't expect to take transit after, are pretty happy that gas is now two bucks a gallon or less, and don't really see why transit should take priority over some other industries, be it the airlines or or others. Why should people who don't take transit care about transit, the future of transit? Well, I think that it's very clear that a large number of cities are designed for transit, first of all. So we have large central cities in places like Chicago, San Francisco, New York, that simply will not work without the transit system. They are not designed for people to be driving to work. If these cities are to continue to exist, they will require transit simply to be able to carry the load of the people who work in those places. So assuming our society at some point goes back to normal, we're going to continue to need transit systems just from the perspective of capacity. Um, The other thing that's worth pointing out is that, you know, our transit systems employ hundreds of thousands of people, as many people are not more than the airline industry. And we're talking about large bailouts to the airline industry right now, just to keep people in their jobs. We should be very worried about the hundreds of thousands of people working for transit systems and state and local governments who are very likely to see their jobs under threat if tax revenues start to decline. So if we care about maintaining minimum public service employment, which I think is absolutely necessary given the recession that is probably already here, then we need to keep those people in their jobs. So we need to ensure that these transit systems continue to operate. And then finally, I think it's really worth reaffirming the point that a large section of our society 
needs is dependent on the transit system to get around. And that includes a very large number of the people who are key workers as part of this response to the coronavirus. People who work in grocery stores, people who work in hospitals are paid very little, and they deserve the ability to get around to those jobs. In fact, we need them to be able to get to their jobs. One thing that I think is really worth pointing out is that there's been a lot of talk of providing a stimulus by cash assistance to people throughout our society. You know, I just wrote an article for The Appeal, an online journal, about the need to take into account people who are not on IRS tax rolls. And those people are currently being ignored as part of the discussion of cash assistance. If we don't maintain transit systems, people who are very low income, who are homeless, who are undocumented are going to have absolutely no assistance whatsoever. They're not going to have transportation and they're not going to have cash assistance. So we need to maintain the transit system as part of that. Yuna, implicit in this conversation has been At some point, the transit systems in this country are probably going to need a bailout. And as Greg alluded to, uh, there's uh, a traditional source for that, uh, which is the the federal government. And we have have that precedent. If there is a bailout, uh, whether it's a macro bailout for multiple industries, if we just focus in on the transit component, if there is a bailout, what should that look like at a a macro and and a transit level? Well, the American Public Transportation Association has requested about $12.9 billion in assistance to transit agencies. And that estimate is actually right on par with what I had assumed was appropriate for transit agencies, because it assumes a very significant loss in fare revenues over the next six months and a very significant reduction in sales taxes. I think that that is a reasonable request given the other requests that are occurring all over the country. One thing that's really important about that number is that it is less than half of what the airline companies have requested, despite the fact that they are private companies and they uh, employ equivalent numbers of people. And it, you know, it, it essentially needs to be used for both operating and capital expenses. So I think the federal government right now needs to commit to providing that kind of support for transit agencies and to providing support to state and local governments that are probably going to want to find ways to orient their money towards the most important things that they run right now, which I assume are the healthcare systems. So we need to make sure that transit systems remain part of the equation. I just want to jump in with a perhaps meta point, which is that if we want to bring our GDP back to $20 trillion, which is where it was uh, pre-corona, uh, it's inconceivable that we could do that without public transportation. That might mm-hmm. be counterintuitive to folks who haven't been on a bus in 20 years, but the lifeblood of the American economy is high productivity metro areas that at their core, where they are most economically productive in Manhattan, in San Francisco, and so forth, have very robust transportation system, public transportation system that is dependent on federal dollars. And so it's a real case of getting more value for dollars. It's also going to be essential, in my view, to the recovery of the economy. Our guest has been Yona Freemark, a PhD candidate in urban studies at MIT. We've been joined by special guest co-host Gregory Schill, associate professor of law at the University of Iowa. This episode is part of a special series of the Business Scholarship Podcast, exploring what the literature has to teach about coronavirus and its impact on society and the economy. Today's conversation was focused on mass transit. Yona, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. And Greg, thank you for co-hosting. Thank you so much. Thanks very much.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.